this week on the Back Table Podcast. If the surgeons are always begging, like if there's anything you can do to save me from taking this patient back to the OR, do it. It doesn't matter. Again, this is where either one of these scenarios, a clipped common bile duct or an HJ, I mean, we've sharp recanalized using the RF wire, back end of a wire. We've pacified the bowel and basically just created a new HJ from the liver down into the bowel. These are sort of like extreme circumstances, one-offs. Every once in a while, you just run into a patient who's already been to the OR several times. Every socked in. The surgeons have no options. That makes it a little easier to be aggressive in those situations. I think that obviously that's something you're going to want to have your biliary surgeons on board for. Welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. First, a brief word from our sponsors. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Back Table Podcast. Now, back to the episode. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'm joined by Dr. Brian Holly. Hey, man. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about PTC and, and biliary interventions. Brian, you're at Johns Hopkins? Correct. Yeah. Never heard of it. <laughs> a lot of our listeners are trainees and it, it's that time of year for interviews. And I was hoping if you wouldn't mind, start by just telling us a little bit about the training program at Hopkins. Oh yeah. So we have a, all basically flavors of interventional radiology training here. So we have the integrated pathway for those folks who make the decision in medical school. They'll do an intern year, three years of diagnostic radiology, followed by two years of interventional radiology and finish with a dual IRDR certificate. For those that are a little less sure and end up in a diagnostic radiology residency, they have the option to then their final year of training focus on interventional radiology in the ESIR year or early specialization in IR. And after that, they'll do a one-year independent residency. And so that pathway is essentially a rebranding of the traditional IR fellowship. And then for those that are really making the decision late, they'll essentially finish their diagnostic radiology residency and do a two-year independent residency. So we have all those options available. As of right now, all of our residents who are enrolled here are all integrated IRDR residents. And so we haven't had anyone do the ESIR independent pathway as of now, but certainly there's no reason other than we just haven't needed this extra space. Hopkins is Hopkins. And so obviously it's one of the stronger training programs in the U.S. You guys do a bit of everything, right? Yeah. Our body IR division here essentially does everything from the neck down. We're pretty fortunate in that respect. We do a lot of vascular interventions. We do women's health, men's health, a lot of cancer work, a lot of biliary intervention. And uh, we've recently added a faculty who's got a very busy interventional spine practice. So we're nice. doing a lot of that work now too. That's yeah. cool. What about you, Brian? I mean, any particular clinical interest or do you, like me, like to do a bit of everything? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely like to do a bit of everything. At this point, I mostly focus on prostate, vascular malformation, and I do a lot of the venous, sort of deep venous or chronic DVT filters, acute, that kind of stuff, PE. Well, today we're going to focus on biliary stuff. And Mark Leslie said you guys do a lot of wild biliary work at Hopkins. And so I'm looking forward to to learning from you. I do a lot. I'm in Louisiana. We do a lot of biliary work where I am. And, and it's interesting. One of the things I've noticed, this is my second practice since I've finished training at Penn. And it's very wildly, it really varied how much and how involved with the biliary work I'm expected to do at each place. And a lot of it depends, to me, it seems like it depends on what the surgeons are doing and what the gastroenterologists are doing. Yeah, I would 100% agree. I think if you're anywhere where there's a busy liver transplant program or a busy pancreatic biliary surgery program, you're going to be doing some creative biliary work. Yeah, I think that's a great word for it is creative biliary work. I've had to kind of think outside the box on a lot of stuff beyond what we did when I was at training. I was at Penn and, and did a lot of it with Richard Slansky Goldberg, who was a biliary wizard, but I've really had to learn a lot of it as I go. I know that a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear a good bit about access and we'll get into that. But first, I wanted to start with some basics. What are the, the more common indications in your practice for, for doing a PTC and or drain? I mean, I think the most common indication is just, right, biliary obstruction. Under that umbrella, certainly there's different causes and and indications within that. But I think by and large, we're talking about a biliary system that's blocked for one reason or another. And the other probably most common indication we get is a biliary system that's leaking for some reason. Yeah. Those are two different birds in terms of (laughs) access and approach. One of the main questions I had for you is, is when you're doing these, Are you doing them under sedation or anesthesia? Generally, I would say probably 80% of what we do is under sedation, 20% anesthesia. And obviously that's mostly just depending on the patient's clinical situation. Obviously being a big tertiary referral center, we get some absolute train wrecks and sometimes the nursing staff is just not comfortable keeping an eye on pressors and giving them sedation at the same time and everything else that's going on. And so in those instances, we'll certainly will use anesthesia for them. Yeah, that's the norm for us too, is to do sedation. Actually, in my last job, the standard was to do general anesthesia for all of them, or at least for the non-dilated ones. And sometimes I miss that. Yeah, I think that the one issue you can run into with sedation is if you get into a situation where the patient gets a little deeply sedated and they're sort of deep breathing, you can run into a lot of liver motion while you're trying to get your tube in. And then also that kind of changes their breathing overall. So the liver is kind of in one position when you're putting the tube in and then they'll come back down for some issue or whatever. And you'll have kind of a funky course of your tube because now they're breathing a lot differently. So sedation in some situations certainly can complicate matters. Brian, in in what circumstances do you require or at least hope that GI has given it a chance first endoscopically? I mean, I don't know that we ever necessarily require GI to have given it a chance first. I think, you know, if you have sort of a sort of straightforward common bile duct obstruction that you could probably cross from a ERCP approach and and spare them a tube outside the crossing, the coming out of the body, that's probably, I mean, the patient most likely would prefer that. But I think if we have a pretty low threshold, if GI or whatever is uncomfortable or has thinks that they're not going to be successful, you know, I certainly don't need them to try it first. Yeah, we're the same way. And, and actually probably 
just guessing maybe half of the biliary interventions I do are referrals from GI. And if they think they can't do it, that's usually enough for me. So it's ruin Y anatomy or, and a lot of times we'll have it after, after they failed. And then sometimes it's coming directly from the surgeons. It seems the sort of local practice pattern here, again, I'm sort of guessing anecdotally here is if a patient is sort of on like a hospitalist or medicine service, probably GI gets contacted first. Yeah. And it goes that route. But yeah, usually if they're, if they're a surgical patient, it seems like it comes to IR first. Yeah. That's similar to us too. So I was trying to figure out the best way to approach the topic. And I thought what we would do is talk about access first and then move on to some specific clinical scenarios. And what I wanted to start with is access to a dilated collecting system, which is actually something I love to do. So I just want you to walk me through how you approach these determining one, you know, let's say they're dilated on both sides, left and right, how you decide where to access, how you access and go from there. All right. So in the setting of bilateral biliary obstruction or, or bilateral intrahepatic biliary dilation, I always try to solve that with as few tubes as possible. Okay. So if the obstruction is low in the system, common bile duct obstruction or somewhere below the confluence of the right and left ducts, I personally think that right-sided biliary access is probably a little more straightforward from a technical standpoint for the operator. And I also feel like those patients have less complications from their tubes. Again, I don't know that there's necessarily any data on that, but I just feel like our right-sided tubes, the patients seem more comfortable with them. The course of them is more straightforward. You're less likely to run into issues with access or anything like that. So my preference for a dilated bilateral system with a single low obstruction where everything's connected is a right-sided percutaneous biliary drain. Do you access when you're doing the right side, when they're dilated, do you use ultrasound? I do not. Okay. Can you walk me through, let's say we're doing a right-sided access, how you get set up and, and how you do your targeting for a dilated system on the right? Yeah, I think for, especially for folks who maybe don't do as much or, or just start now, I think the setup is actually important in terms of just putting yourself in position to be successful. So obviously all the patients are going to be supine. We use what we call, we call it a drop arm board, which is essentially rather than the patient's arm being on the bed, on the table next to them, we sort of extend it out and it kind of drops down. So it's a little bit below the level of the table. Then we just basically prep all the way from the the level, the you know, basically the part of the patient that's on the table, we prep all the way up to sort of like midline abdomen. I find that helpful for right-sided access. I always basically just try to stick for mid-axillary, come below. I like to, in an ideal setting, obviously patient's anatomy is going to dictate some of this, but ideal setting, mid-axillary line, somewhere inferior to the 10th rib, keeps you away from the pleura. And the easiest way that I, you know, I tell our residents to find the mid-axillary line is feel the table, feel the top of the patient, and then just put your finger right in between those two. And that's the mid-axillary line. And obviously, you know, some patients are bigger than others. And I know it sounds obvious, but it's actually not always that straightforward. A lot of times we'll see residents whose needle is way too far posterior, way too far anterior, and they're just sticking over and over. And they're, they haven't set themselves up for success from their initial placement. So find the mid-axillary line, come below the 10th rib. I like to use 22-gauge beveled Chiba needle, and I essentially aim for the patient's left shoulder with that needle. Get that in, you know, nice and deep there, hook up contrast, and then we just puff contrast on the way back. For those 
again, starting out or don't do as much of this, you're going to want to basically retract the the needle fairly slowly, give it little puffs of contrast. It, oh, an entire needle pass, probably like one or two cc's of contrast in total. I tell the residents, again, when you're starting out, fluoroscopy is your friend and contrast is your friend. So use more fluoro, use more contrast, be sure your needle is where you think it is. And obviously, as you gain experience with that, your fluoro times and your contrast loads will come down. So a couple questions on that. One, in your initial needle stick, how deep are you going relative to the spine? I guess it depends on the anatomy. Yeah, it depends on the anatomy. But I, I would say, you know, I try to, in my mind, guess where I think the liver hilum is. So where the biliary confluence, where the portal confluence, where all that is. And I try to extend the needle past that at least a few centimeters just trying to cross as many ducks as possible. And whatever you fill on the way back is where you start. And so when you're doing the pullback and you're injecting, do you inject the entire time you're retracting or, you do, or do you do just a little puff, then pull, a little puff, then pull? At this point, if I'm doing it, it's going to be kind of a slow, continuous pullback of the needle with like sort of repeated little puffs of contrast until something fills, right? Even if it's a vein or a portal, hepatic, whatever, if something fills, then I'll give a little extra contrast there, see what it does. And if it's in a vein, move on. Yeah. It's, I mean, I actually find it helpful if I hit a portal vein because it tells me I'm close. Right. Yeah. At least you know you're in the liver at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Just as an aside, a joke, the easiest way to, to do a PTC is to do a TIPS. Yeah. It's almost invariable if you're trying to do some sort of transhepatic portal access that you'll hit the biliary tree first. Every and time. If you're, trying to do, if you're trying to do biliary work, you're going to hit the portal vein first. Yeah. I'm, I'm really great at TIPS biliary access. Okay. So <laughs> you're aspirating and you fill a duct. What happens next? Yeah. So once you're you know, injecting the contrast and it's hard to describe, but you kind of know it when you see it, like it's almost like this, I feel like contrast going into a biliary tree is sort of like a flowing lava look to it. It just kind of flows real slow. It drips down into subsequent biliary ducts. If you're injecting a hepatic vein or a portal vein, it's, it's a more rapid sort of constant stream. So when you start to see that sort of dripping lava look to the contrast and you're in the duct, and then I basically just keep dumping contrast in until I see a duct that I like that's going to give me an angle, an access point, a direction where I feel like, hey, that's something we can pretty successfully access and it's going to make our angles and vectors good for any future intervention. I forgot to mention that there's an important point is knowing that you're in the bile duct compared to portal vein or hepatic vein, you know, you got to know which ones are going to go central, which ones are going to go peripheral, or I guess occasionally lymphatic. I'm really good at accidentally hitting lymphatic ducts. Okay. So occasionally you'll get lucky on the initial needle stick and it'll be a great duct and you can just go from there. Do you find yourself doing a second stick most of the time? I think if it's a really dilated system, my approach is a little different. I try to just do that at one stick. So I don't advance the needle as far into the liver. So I'll just try to hit kind of a more peripheral duct with that. But yeah, if it's a, a leak or a non-dilated system, I'm sticking right into the hilum, trying to get the biggest duct I can, fill them up as best I can, and then go two stick. I would say probably, certainly the majority, maybe like 75% probably end up being a two stick technique. So, you know, this applies to both dilated and non-dilated. You know, you're in and you're, you're about to target another duct. How do you target the second duct that you're going to go after for your access? This can sometimes be one of the most challenging parts of a PPC. It's definitely one of the most challenging parts. I also think the concept of triangulating yes. a 
2D structure in a 3D person is, that's one that I think residents certainly have the most difficulty with in all of interventional radiology. And so the way I like to do it is, so you've got all your ducts filled up at this point. I like to just pick a duct and then I actually have a, the technologist open up the field of view as much as possible. And so I can see the edge of the patient and I'll put a clamp on the edge of the patient where I want to access from the skin so that it at least looks like, you know, it's going to make a nice angle into that duct. So I have, I know my point B is the duct, point A is the level on the skin where I want to access. And once I have those things, I basically just draw a line on the patient's skin that is then that line that I draw is perpendicular to the bed, right? So that gives me my access point somewhere along that line in the sort of craniocaudal aspect of the patient. And I sort of leave that clamp on the patient. I stay on fluoro and I have the tech rotate the II towards me to basically almost a lateral view. And then I can follow that duct as we rotate lateral. And then I'll know if that duct is basically anterior or posterior to where my clamp is on the skin. And then I draw a second line that's now parallel to the table. So it intersects our first line. So then you have a, a single point of entry on the skin. All right. So then I go back to AP. I take that where those two lines cross and I try to just go in parallel to the table right there under fluoro and stick that duct. And then once your needle is in, say you don't hit it on the first stick, how do you know which direction to move it, anterior or posterior relative to the duct? Exactly. So this is what we were just talking about, right? So this is triangulating. So you put your, you put your needle in and, you know, I always tell the residents, the thing you want to look for is you want to see the contrast in the bile duct disappear, right? You want it to blanch and then you know you've popped into it. If that doesn't happen, you're not in the duct. Even if your needle goes right across it, it means you're either anterior or posterior to the duct. So at that point with your needle in, again, you're standing on fluoro, you're going to have rotate the II towards you. So ipsilateral rotation until you see the duct and the needle separate. All right. And so then I usually just, what I like to tell my residents to do is just take your hands and put one hand on top of the other and then turn them side to side. And whichever one goes to the right, that's going towards the anterior part of the image intensifier, which is the right hand side of the screen when you're going into a lateral view like that. So then, you know, whichever one of those structures is, if it's a needle or the bile duct goes towards the right and that's the one that's anterior. So if your needle's anterior, then you got to pull it back in the posterior. If the duct's anterior, then you got to pull your needle back in the anterior. Exactly. Mine's a little bit different, but the same concept, actually oblique away from me. And what I, I've remembered from training is posterior pulls. And so if the needle goes in the direction of the image intensifier, it's posterior. If it goes the opposite direction, it's anterior, then just pull back, make a correction, and hopefully it doesn't take more than a couple of those. I do so much biliary work here that I do all my triangulation like that. I know some people like to do like gun sight where they'll line up the, the eye over the needle. Like if you're, I don't know if you have to like two stick a renal collecting system or something like that, you know, they'll, they'll line up the needle gun sight. I don't even like to do that. I'm so used to putting the, the needle in with the eye and AP rolling lateral and then correcting that way that that's just how I do everything. Same way. I do the exact same thing. Gun sight doesn't help me that much. It no, certainly agreed. doesn't save me any time. Yeah. Okay. I think that covers how we access for dilated. Non-dilated can be one of the most challenging things that we do. It's certainly one of the most frustrating. I've found some tricks along the way that have helped me, but I'm, I'm curious how you approach a non-dilated collecting system, let's say a, a bio leak. So, I mean, I basically do, you know, the first steps are the same. 
But you want to look at the liver, try to get, take your best guess where the, the hilum is. You know, you're going to make the same kinds of needle passes towards the hilum. I always aim central there. Your only hope is to hit a central duck. You're almost every time going to be a two-stick technique for something like that. I mean, every once in a, a while, someone will blindly get lucky and get something peripheral. I have a partner who gets lucky like that every time and it's anger inducing. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. There's, there's always one person like that in the practice and how that happens every time is beyond me, but it definitely does. Same thing, right? Once you're in, you're injecting contrast. The problem in this scenario is, right, the contrast never stays in the duct right. long enough to access. So this is where you essentially need a second set of hands here, or obviously have the luxury of always having a resident in the room. So we're always have two people accessing. So one person, there's a couple ways to do this. One is whether you have somebody else around, I usually just have them sort of constantly inject contrast into the biliary system, trying to fill it up as much as possible and just hoping that you can find some peripheral duct. Sometimes I'll mix the contrast with some some lidocaine jelly just to thicken it a little bit. Okay, I've never heard of that. And then sometimes if you can thicken the contrast a little bit and you eject it, sometimes it'll hang out in the system a little bit longer. Interesting. If it's really dumping out fast, I have basically just wherever you've accessed the duct, you just get a wire through at that point, take your needle out, and you want to try to get some sort of low profile micropuncture or microcatheter or something like that in there. And then you can kind of work your way up to a basically a microcatheter with a balloon at the end of it. And you can try to sort of occlude the outflow of the system while you fill with contrast. I mean, that's obviously you're really committed to it at that point, but those are some of the some of the things. But I think the thing that usually ends up working is just pumping as much. You're just gonna dump a ton of contrast in there constantly, constantly, constantly until you finally uh, are able to to get that second duct. Yeah, I'll occasionally even put in like a grab or an acoustic or you know micropuncture and just get it in there because I mean these ducts are so decompressed that losing access is just the worst. Yeah. And then you, as the patient's breathing, right, the initial needle you have in there is inevitably going to move a little bit back and forth. And then you can essentially, it just, you can really turn it into a mess where if you're like extraving contrast everywhere and, and, yeah. you, and you can't, can't see. see anything. And invariably, if I get out of the duct that I initially access for whatever reason, I can never get back into that one. Right? I'm not going no. to find another one. It's just, yeah, it's brutal. I think the other thing just kind of keep in mind is you got to have to, for something like that, I think you have to have some sort of limit set for yourself in terms of number of needle passes, fluoro time, you know, whatever. Like at some point that you got to give the liver a break and just, you know, live to fight another day and, and bring the patient back. You know, there's no, there's no shame in that. I mean, it happens from time to time, better off having to do a second procedure than having some, you know, horrific complication. I think that's really hard to do though. It, it's hard to, when you're in there. And I, I think that is a really good idea is to set it beforehand because I find myself in there. It's a slog. I've hit a bile duct, so I know it's possible and it's hard to remove yourself. You know, you get really locked in and it's hard to remove yourself and say, wait a minute, I've been doing this for an hour and a half. And that's a challenge for me. One thing that I've resorted to doing in ones where no matter what I do, I, I can't find a bile duct. Something that I've been doing recently is just prepping out really wide and looking with ultrasound. And even when they're decompressed, I can usually find the left or the right hepatic duct. And I'll just stab it with ultrasound really central and fill it from there. Hopefully it, it doesn't require that. 
Yeah, no, I think ultrasound is definitely your friend. If I'm ever doing left-sided biliary access, I always do ultrasound for that. I just think like the left side is way more variable than the than the right side in terms of where the stomach is, all these types of things. So any left-sided access, I'm going to use an ultrasound for. And certainly, you know, some of my partners use ultrasound for right-sided access. So it's just basically, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. But sure, certainly for in a decompressed system, all bets are off. Whatever works, do it. Yeah, I completely agree. Sometimes we'll get lucky and they have a common bile duct stent. And if I can't get anything in, I'll occasionally just stab the stent and send a wire out. But what I can't decide in those scenarios, like, do I stab the wire or do I try to risk putting in a grab or an stick and hope it didn't go through anything bad? Yeah, definitely. If you have any target, you can have it there. The other thing I'll find helpful is, you know, a lot of these leak patients are are post-op. Yeah. So if there's some sort of surgical drain or a clip, or whatever's in there that you can use as a landmark to help guide you, I think that can be helpful as well. Same as same as like a biliary stent. Hey, Brian, I forgot to ask, you know, when you're doing these for dilated or non-dilated, you got your initial stick. How are you adjusting your needle for subsequent passes if you don't fill a bile duct? Oh, yeah. So that's a good question. So you put your initial needle stick through, you puff, puff, puff all the way back, nothing fills up. If you feel good about the sort of angle that your needle is or your sort of north-south craniocaudal where the needle is crossing, I like to fan it out in that same plane, but anteriorly or posteriorly. So if you have a beveled needle, typically the needle wants to dive towards the bevel. And so I'll just, you know, I usually just pick a direction, whatever, let's go posterior first. And so then I'll just make sure that my needle is, you know, the bevels towards the floor and then just kind of direct it a little bit more posterior each time you should maybe go three or four passes posterior. If you don't hit anything, come back to, to parallel, flip the bevel the other direction and then go three or four passes anterior. And if that doesn't work, then I'll move either towards the head or towards the feet a little bit. And I kind of just go in that pattern. So while we're on non-dilator, let's just run with it. So you've gotten access We'll say it's for a post-operative leak after a hepatectomy or something like that. What do you do next? You've accessed the duct, you send the wire, it goes where you want, then what? Yeah. So once you've got a wire through there, the tricky part of a leak is you never know if your wire is through into the bowel or through into the leak. So I usually will just take something pretty low profile, again, uh, AccuStick, even like a long micropuncture or something like that. I just send it out there, just off a little contrast and kind of figure out where we are. If you're the bow, great. Then you can just take it upsize to a 035 wire and then get your biliary tube in there. If you're out into the leak, I think I have found that that is somewhat surgeon dependent kind of what they want you to do with it at that point. Some surgeons like you to just leave a drain up in the liver. And then, you know, when they have to go back to do whatever they're going to do, they'll kind of pull it through or, or do whatever they want. And then I've had other surgeons tell me, hey, just put the tube down through the leak, leave it in that subhepatic space. And then I'll use that to create a new HJ or something. Like yeah. That's interesting. It, it's kind of the same approach for ours. It's very surgeon dependent. I had one not long ago where no matter what I did, it's just a gaping hole. And I couldn't get anything to go through and it would just keep going out through there and finally just put the drain right through it. And I was like, yeah, you're sure. <laughs> when you're doing it for a leak, what size do you usually go? I generally start every biliary tube at 10 French. Uh, we sort of found here that eight French can be a little flimsy. You'll run into issues with the tube, either moving in, moving out, kinking, something like that. Exactly. And trying to get in anything much bigger than a 10, you start running into issues with renting the liver and causing more issues. So we found that sort of the initial access 10 French is kind of the sweet spot. Okay. And then who manages 
how long to leave it in after that. For us, it's mainly the surgeons that are, are kind of directing it. Yeah, I think it depends. Again, if it's a surgical patient, then they're going to direct that. If it's not a surgical patient, it's going to be us. You know, we actually have an NP who rounds on all of our drains and stuff like that, you know, after we put them in. So uh, we kind of stay on top of those things. And for especially for like the medical teams, oncology teams, things like that, we'll kind of give our best suggestions on do we need to upsize this, trending bilirubins, things like that. Let's move on to the dilated system. You've got access. How you manage it is really going to depend on where the obstruction is. I've found with like a Klatskin's tumor, I often have to get bilateral access to get a durable drainage. Yeah, and I think there's a lot that goes into that decision. And I think there's basically sort of two decision points. The first one is, is this a malignant obstruction or is this a benign obstruction? So, you know, that's going to depend on sort of it. And then the other thing is, is this patient going for surgery or is this a chemotherapy kind of thing? So if you have the sort of low common bile duct obstruction, that's benign, it's a stone, it's a stricture or something like that. I think a single tube down through into the bowel, we tend to upsize those incrementally with the goal being something like a 16 French just to dilate a stricture there. If it's malignant, again, it's just going to depend on kind of what the long-term plan for the patient is. And the short-term, I mean, sometimes we get the ones that like, we need the bilirubin to be below a certain level or we can't give chemo. I think for me, one of the decision points is, do I just leave the one drain and see how they do? Or do I just primarily put in two drains, you know, for as consumer? So I actually had this exact conversation with the resident. So I was on call last night and the the last patient of the day that came down is a metastatic colorectal cancer with a big mass right at the sort of liver hilum with bilateral biliary obstruction. And I, I just decided to put the left-sided tube in first. And I got that left-sided tube, actually went right down through into the bowel, no problem. But I wasn't filling any of the right-sided ducts. So I was like, well, we're going to, I mean, this woman's going to need bilateral tubes anyway. So then I put the right side of tube in and for whatever reason from the right side, I think the tumor was just necrotic and the wire just kind of kept ending up. I could never get the wire to go down on the right side. So then I just left an anchor drain kind of in the central aspect of the right side of duct. So we got both sides drained, but you know, ultimately the goal is going to be to get them both down into the bow there. So some of it, I think is just dictated by sort of what's going on. You said an anchor drain. Is that different from, I'm just using essentially an abscess drain for an external biliary drain. Is an anchor drain any different? No, it's not any different. The end of the tube just doesn't have a, like a retention loop on it. It's essentially straight. And when you pull the string, it kind of forms like a, almost like a lowercase T shape to it. So the sides kind of flare out and it just kind of anchors it in there, which is why we affectionately refer to it as an anchor drain. How long do you typically wait before trying it again to convert it to an internal external? I think ideally like 48 hours, just give it some time to decompress. I think a lot of these obstructions, you know, there's a lot of inflammation that comes along with it. So if you just give the biliary tree a couple of days to drain and the inflammation dies down, I find that when you bring the patient back, a lot of times, like the wire just sort of flies right through whatever the obstruction was. Yeah. Even just for letting it drain for a couple of days. Yeah, I've been surprised at how much easier it is the second go around. Let's say for like a malignant CBD stricture, the wire doesn't immediately fly down. What's your next step? 
Again, so this is a little bit also dictated by what's going on with the patient. You know, if it's someone who's got a biliary obstruction, who's in the ICU, septic, on pressors, I don't really horse around too much. I just sort of get in. If the wire flies down, great. I'll put the tube in. If not, I'm just going to leave the anchor drain and get the infected bile out of there again and bring it back. But if you're not infected, I usually try. If the wire doesn't go down, I actually prefer a Jeffrey set just because it's a little bigger. It's a it's an eight French outer, which just gives you a little more in terms of... That's similar. I use it. I just put in an eight sheet. Yeah, right. The Jeffrey's set that we have is essentially a bigger AccuStick. So we'll get that in. And then you can you can basically put whatever you want through there. My typical first go around is a GlideCath wire. Just get that right down to the obstruction there and see if you can work it through. If that doesn't work, I'll usually try either like a Roadrunner wire or a Stiff Glide wire. If that doesn't work, to be honest, if it's the first go around, I usually just stop at that point and just put the, leave the anchor drain and, and let them decompress. If they're coming back for round two and they've drained for a little while, then yeah, I mean, I'll put a sort of a E-French sheath and try to get that down into the common bile duct there. And then sort of whatever you need at that point, I've, I've done microcatheters to get through the obstruction. But normally at that point, like something along the lines of glad wire, stiff glad wire, glide catheter, whatever, will get you through there. Yeah, same. For the, the malignant CBD strictures, do you get many requests to do either a brush or a tissue biopsy when you're in there? Yeah, we do. Brush biopsies are sort of a coin flip of whether or not that's going to give you anything. I generally do both. I generally brush and clamshell. You use clamshell. Okay. Yeah. And if we do that once or twice and we're not getting much back, we've started actually doing cholangioscopy scope-directed biopsy. I personally don't do that, but we have some partners that do. And so we've had some pretty good success with that. I actually have two partners who will do a percutaneous biopsy of the biliary stricture. And that's something that I do after seeing several pseudoaneurysms after, but what they'll do is line up fluoro and take a yeah. 20 gauge core biopsy set and just push it right through and biopsy right on the stricture. And I got to tell you, their diagnostic rate is really high, but it's one thing to, to stick a 22 gauge needle through everything. It's another to core through it. I've only done it a couple of times, but yeah, actually I was having a discussion a couple of days ago with people with what they prefer for biopsies. And I know there's some, there's some decent forceps. They really vary. Yeah, the clamshell seems to be pretty good. You get some pretty good chunks of tissue with there. You, they're pretty flexible. So if you can get a sheath to the obstruction, then you can get the clamshells right there and you can get some pretty good tissue. So I find that if between the brushing and the clamshell, I would say probably maybe two thirds, three quarters of the time, you know, you're going to get something pretty diagnostic. good. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I'm going to try that next time, do the clamshell in addition to the brush instead of just one or the other. Cause I've had a lot where I've done the brush and then like, well, we need another and bring back and yeah, I, I gave up on just the brush. I, th I, I just tell people that you're just wasting a trip to IR if that's all you want us to do. Well, all you get most of the time is like suspicious cells. And it's like, okay, well, we already knew this was suspicious or we wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you, you've crossed the obstruction. One thing that I run into on occasion is, is either with a really tight angle of entry of the duct I selected into the hepatic duct, or if it's just a really tight stricture, sometimes I can't get the drain to go. And- is that something you run into? Yeah. I mean, I think it, all right. So definitely you're going to encounter a scenario where something is too tight to get the drain in. So, you know, there's a couple things you can do there. Number one is just put a smaller drain in. If all else fails and you have to put an eight French in initially, put an eight French in, at least it'll hold the track and they come back in a day or two. It'll be a little easier to get a 10 French in there. 
if you're at the point where you're trying to upsize and, and nothing's going through there, I mean, I think, you know, I try all the sort of routine things first. Number one, try a stiffer wire. Lunderquist is my favorite for this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Number two is you can almost sort of, depending on how far in the stricture is, you know, you may be able to get a dilator through there to see if that helps. You can put a balloon through and stretch it out with a balloon and then get the drain in that way. You're sort of, again, this is where you can, can really get creative with it. Brian, you know, after you've gotten through there, you've got your drain in. And again, I know this is going to vary from patient to patient, but where do you ideally want your marker to be? And, and when do you think it's necessary, if ever, to add additional side holes? Yeah. So when we access the peripheral duct that ultimately we're going to take, you know, I try to always, you know, remind everyone to save an image of that. And that's basically the, the reference image I use is where that needle tip is in the duct. That's where I try to put my marker. You want that marker as peripheral as possible. So you're draining as many of those side ducts as you can. If you've accessed very peripherally and the patient has a long common bile duct, you certainly could run into the scenario where your retention loop is in the bowel, but your marker is not as far back as you would have hoped. And you, you have some stretch of bile duct there that is not drained. The risk there is that you're, they're going to leak. They have some small side branch there. It's going to basically just wick along the side of the drain and come out of the patient. Or even worse, it'll wick along the side of the drain and you'll end up with a biloma or something, you know, along the capsule of the liver. So that's the scenario where you got to put an extra side holes if it's just too long from where you've accessed to the bowel. And how do you personally create the extra, extra side holes? So if you're unlucky and you put the drain in and you realize that, you know, your marker is too central, basically what I'll do is I'll just put a wire in through the drain that's in there to where, so I can see the tip of the wire, you know, basically where I want the, where I want the last side hole to be, I put the wire in and I just clamp the wire at the end of the drain. And then I put a wire back through the drain, take the drain out. And then you can just measure with that wire to where your last side hole should be. But do you use scissors? I mean, I, I typically just take scissors kind of the side of the tube. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I find that you know, there's basically two ways to do that. You take scissors, you you can basically just fold the tube over so it kind of creates the corners. Invariably, you're going to cut the string yeah. if you do it that way, <laughs> which is not the end of the world, honestly, especially if it's like the first one and you know you're going to be bringing them back soon. But So I actually find a better way to do it is to sort of just mark on the drain where you want it to go and then wrap the drain around your finger so that it's more of a, so that's like a smooth curve. And the string always follows the lesser, you know, the base of the part of the drain that's along your finger. And so then I just cut a little piece of the drain off on the side that's sticking up. Okay. Brian, just a few specific clinical scenarios. You're putting in an access for a distal CBD stone without a known stricture. Do you ever mess with the stone? So if they're clinically stable, you know, that they're not really infected or anything like that. I think you're, you know, if you want to spend a few minutes and try to get that stone out of there, I think that's reasonable. Again, there's a whole host of options there. My typical go-to is to get a wire down into the bowel, inflate a Fogarty balloon, and just try to push the stone down through into the bowel. It's the same thing I do. Do you ever do a sphincterotomy with that? I mean, if I'm pushing and not like the stone or the Fogarty balloon is not going through the sphincter, I will balloon the sphincter again, assuming that like, we're not like spending hours on this and the patient is stable, all those things. But yeah, like I'll certainly dilate the sphincter a little bit with a balloon and then try it again. 
What size balloon do you use? Usually start with like an eight or a 10. Us too. Okay. This is a challenging one, but what's your approach to benign biliary strictures? <laughs> you guys did what similar to what we did at Penn. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I know that this is, I mean, I guess there's probably a couple of places around the country that do this, but this sort of protocol that we have is if you believe the rumors based on a patient who got a biliary drain, went to jail for a year with their biliary drain in, lost the file, came back, got their biliary drain out and their stricture never came back again. So that's at least, at least what I've been told where this comes from. So essentially, yeah. So for a benign biliary stricture, and, and typically we're talking about like a post-op HJ stricture here, you know, we'll get access, we'll put a tube down too. We will serially or sequentially dilate that up to sort of 16, 18, 20 French, something of that neighborhood. And then we put in a very specific biliary tube. It's a silastic tube. So it's a little softer. So it's a little more comfortable for the patient. It's called a higher Schulte tube. Oh yeah. I know those. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the bane of my existence, but the surgeons love them. So uh, we'll put a higher Schulte in. And so then basically from the time they get their goal size, higher Schulte, so let's say their goal size is 16 French. So from the time they get their 16 French higher Schulte in, we will every eight to 12 weeks exchange it just so they have a fresh tube in there. And then after six months, do over the wire cholangiogram. If all looks good, we'll cut the tube short of the HJ. So it ends up in the liver and we'll cap that tube for two weeks. Uh, we call that a clinical trial. So basically they're just have a tube in as a placeholder, but the HJ is functioning normally. Assuming they do well for two weeks, we bring them back and we do what's called a biliary Whitaker, which is basically just a stress test of the biliary system where you inject increasing volumes and flows of contrast through the tube. And as long as the HJ is able to handle it, no reflux, no pain, nothing like that, then, then we take their tube out. How do you deal with that 18 French gaping hole? Like, How long does that take to close? Honestly, we just bandage it up. It usually seals up on its own, especially, you know, if their HJ is open, the path of least resistance should at that point then be down through the liver. So we usually tell them, you know, they're going to leak for a couple of days, but we just bandage it up. Those are a challenge. Yes. So my next question is kind of a, it's a controversial topic. It was not something that we did much at all at Penn, but it was something that came up in my first job after training. I would be asked to put in internal stents. And I, I want to know how you guys are, if you guys are doing those and, and when. Yeah. So we do place internal stents. I think that, again, a lot of this is just going to be dictated by your local referral patterns. I don't know that there's necessarily a right or wrong in these situations. I think the slam dunk one is a non-surgical patient with less than six months to live. So, you know, advanced pancreatic cancer, those patients, I think it's pretty well established and accepted to stent them and just get everything out and that will last until they pass. But outside of that, I think it's going to depend on the setting, the referring, like what's going on. I mean, we've certainly have, you know, I think like in that situation, our go-to is a viable. I just think they're pretty reliable in that situation. But, you know, you certainly wouldn't want to put a viable in someone who doesn't have a malignant stricture. I think we probably favor a Wallflex stent in those situations. Certainly the endoscopy team can take those out or swap them if needed. We've even taken them out and swapped them, you know, percutaneously in some settings. Yeah. That's something that I do more than I thought I was going to do, the stents. And it's the same scenario, especially somebody who's going to be going to hospice, if you can get their tubes out. I have seen some who come back, they end up living a whole lot longer than expected. And when they go down, they, they tend to go down pretty hard. It can be hard to open them back up. 
But I think for me, one of the challenges is knowing which patients you can stent and get a good clinical result, especially for these ones with these hyalur tumors that extend into the hepatic ducts. And I'll occasionally take kissing stents and go into the left and right hepatic ducts, but can be really tough because distal to that, you know, they're, they're often kind of decompressed. I personally find those to be a challenge. Yeah, no, I agree. I think anything around the hilum is tricky, especially cholangio at the hilum. Again, I mean, that's not a good prognosis. They don't have long to go. The last thing those patients want is uh, tubes coming out of them for the end. And so again, in those settings, like jailing off a a duct here and there in the name of if they're not going to get chemo and their ability is going to be a little bit higher, but they're going to be more comfortable. I think just having open factual discussions with the patients and the referrings about what all the possibilities are goes a long way in making sure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah. I talked about Dr. Slansky Goldberg at Penn. He he did some amazing things with with some stents when I was there. But yeah, I'm with you. I I think you also have to take it on a patient by patient basis. Some of them you tell them, it's like, look, I'm going to put this in and there is a chance this could go down and I have to do a PTC again. And I found that a lot of the time, like, look, if it means getting these tubes out for three months, I'll, I'll take that risk. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, some patients just don't tolerate them well and, and they'll, they'll do anything to get the tubes out of there. Yeah. One last thing that I wanted to talk about that we run into every now and then is putting your tube and you get a phone call a couple of days later and there's a lot of bleeding either around the tube or from the tube. And I'm curious how you manage that. I think that the overwhelming majority of bleeding associated with a biliary tube is, you know, you've crossed a portal or a hepatic vein. So the trick of it obviously is determining like something like that is pretty minor. You can basically just adjust the position of the tube and it will sort of tamponade and take care of it. The problem you run into is if you've crossed an artery or if you've eroded to an artery or something like that, obviously that's a different story. So I think the patient will sort of guide you as to which way that's going. If they're oozing or there's a little bit of dark blood, certainly needs to be investigated. And I think the number one thing to do there is just, first thing is just take the tube out, put a wire in and take the tube out and just look. If blood is oozing back out at you, then you haven't crossed an artery. That can just be, you know, you basically just need to fix the position of your last side hole, or you can even just put in a little bit bigger tube at that point. We'll usually take care of it. But if blood is obviously like pouring out of there, pulsatile, then, you know, you put the tube right back in and you go interrogate the artery. Okay. Brian, that is pretty much all I got. Is there anything else that I didn't cover that you think is important to address? I don't know. Do you guys ever run into the sort of complicated, someone has accidentally clipped the common bile duct? Yes. Due to lap coli, or you've got a, an HJ stricture that you can't cross. What are you guys doing in those situations? The CBD stricture is a big challenge. We'll occasionally get somebody, it's usually an outside hospital transfer, and they get sent to us. And a lot of time, it, it's harder than you expect to diagnose. They're just dilated after, and you, you suspect that's what it is. Try everything I can to cross that. I, I haven't had very many of them. What about you? I would say if the surgeons are always like begging, like if there's anything you can do to save me from taking this patient back to the OR, do it. Don't. It doesn't matter. I mean, we've Again, this is where either one of these scenarios, a clipped common bile duct or an HJ, I mean, we've sharp recanalized using the RF wire, back end of a wire. We've stuck the bowel, pacified the bowel, and basically just created a new HJ from the liver down into the bowel. That's cool. Yeah. These are sort of like extreme circumstances, one-offs, but every once in a while, you just run into a patient who's already been to the OR several times, everything's socked in, the surgeons have no options. 
So that makes it a little easier to be sort of aggressive in those situations. But I think that, you know, obviously that's something you're going to want to have your, have your ability surgeons on board for. Yeah. I, I, I just out of curiosity, I mean, will you walk me through how you do that, creating a new HA? Yeah. So I would say probably a handful of times a year, it comes up where I have a patient who's got an HJ, it gets obstructed. And for whatever reason, we just always end up out in never, never land rather than down in the bow. What we've had some success with is basically just taking a chiba needle and sticking it straight down outside the, the liver edge there, liver margin. And almost like you're trying to opacify a bile duct, but you're trying to opacify a loop of bowel. Once you opacify the loop of bowel, again, it's a lot of triangulation. Some of it, honestly, is just luck. If you can find a loop of bowel that's sort of right up against the edge of the liver there and you can get a good angle and everything. I like the RF wire actually for that. It's very directable. It'll just kind of burn its way through into the bowel. You can snare it and then you can kind of just build it up from there, you know, just balloon, get a small tube in. And then, I mean, the patient just needs to have a tube in for a long time so it can endothelialize. That is rad. Yeah. Look, man, that was great. I appreciate you taking the time to do this and hopefully I can get you back on for something else. Yeah, man. Sounds great. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Mandir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 